few days ago, I spoke to Venetia Gordon, who's a project manager at the South African Anxiety and Depression Group, SADAG. Venetia said something in the course of our conversation which really stuck with me. I had asked her what she thought the psychological fallout of the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdown might be for South Africans. From my side, I would assume that definitely after this 21 days or even during these 21 days, I think there will definitely be a lot more people that are going to be struggling with anxieties, with uh, stress, with, you know, like adapting to like this normal and then adapting to a new normal. I think there's going to be so many different um, aspects that are going to come into play. And I feel that people that did not have a mental health issue or had not experienced a mental health diagnosis beforehand are definitely going to feel those anxieties in the future. The new normal. It was that phrase which Venetia used, which I couldn't get out of my head. For Venetia, the new normal is a place which sees South Africans facing mental health difficulties on a scale which may be far more widespread than before. But a lot of people are talking about the new normal at the moment, and a lot of people have different ideas of what that is going to look like. So we thought we'd dive into a little futurism too. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. On this episode, we're considering the post-pandemic society, how it might look and how our lives might change. We'll be talking to one of the world's most respected futurists, and at the end, we'll hear from literary legend Arundhati Roy. I'm Rebecca Davis. One of the millions of nonsense WhatsApps doing the rounds at the moment claims that the whole coronavirus pandemic was predicted by Nostradamus. It's not true. But it is true that a number of more recent thinkers did predict events uncannily like what we're facing today. Here's a quote from a book written in 2014. There is a significant probability that a pandemic will strike a financial centre such as New York or London, and through disease, quarantine, panic, or the collapse of secondary services, transport, energy, information technology, or other, lead to at least a temporary isolation of major players in the global system. That book was called The Butterfly Defect, and its author was Professor Ian Golden. Ian heads up the Oxford Martin School at the University of Oxford and is one of the world's most highly respected thinkers on topics like globalization and the future we're heading into. He also happens to be a proud son of South Africa, former chief executive of the Development Bank of Southern Africa, who served as a special advisor on economics to Nelson Mandela. In The Butterfly Defect, Ian made a host of brilliant suggestions about ways in which the world could prepare itself for a coming pandemic. He proposed, for instance, that search engines like Google could serve as early warning systems for an outbreak of disease by noting a sudden uptick in searches for particular symptoms in particular parts of the world. He also suggested that countries should have the equivalent of medical SWAT teams on standby to handle this kind of health crisis when it inevitably hit. So we called him up to ask, did any of his ideas get put into place? No, on the contrary, uh, the world has been dismally unprepared for what was inevitable, which was a global pandemic. There's been a complacency at both the national and the international level. 
And in fact, uh, we're fortunate in a sense this arose in China, uh, not in some other places, because China is probably the most prepared country in the world for pandemic management, as we've seen in, in a very swift way once they admitted they had it, that they responded. So this is a real paradox that uh, countries know this is the greatest threat they face and yet have done very little about it. And that international community knows that they have to cooperate to stop pandemics. But if anything, they've starved the institutions responsible, not least the World Health Organization, of the necessary authority, uh, resources and ability to stop these pandemics. I was really curious. What does it feel like to write a book and not have anyone decide to take up the measures you propose? And then everything explodes exactly as you predicted. Is there a sense of vindication or are you just almightily pissed off? It's a, a tragedy that, you know, we only wake up after uh, we've had the accident, uh, not before. And yes, it's very frustrating personally, although, of course, I would have far preferred that this didn't happen, that I was proved wrong. And that we have the ability as countries, and particularly the very advanced countries, which have, you know, very sophisticated systems in place to, to look forward and see these looming threats. The looming threats that Ian warned in his book are ever more likely in an interconnected world are not restricted to health crises. What Ian wrote in The Butterfly Defect is that we are overloading the global networks and the results are likely to be felt in catastrophes ranging from the financial to the environmental. My hope is that at the very least, this serves as a wake-up call not only to stop the next pandemic, which could be even more devastating, but also teaches us to think forward, to cooperate and stop other big threats like climate change. Cooperation is something Ian is big on. He's been banging this drum for decades in his writing, trying to get people to agree that one of the only ways we can make globalization work is through deep international cooperation. The COVID-19 pandemic is the ultimate crisis of globalization. Its spread from Wuhan to the entire world in just weeks has illustrated just how interconnected we now are. But in this moment, when the chips are down, it seems like cooperation is in short supply. It's true that some rich world countries like Germany have offered generous aid to developing nations, but we're also seeing examples of international leaders looking out for their own interests at the expense of everyone else's. And a prime example is US President Donald Trump and his ongoing attempts to poach health workers and pharmaceutical supplies from other nations. Well, one of the most worrying things that's happening, as you point out, is this lack of cooperation, the rise of nationalism. And there's been really a very, very small response at the global level. Ian says we actually saw far higher levels of global cooperation in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, where one of the things that helped stave off a global Great Depression was a rapid and massive fiscal stimulus package from China. Now, once again, the US is leading the G7. And as you have pointed out, President Trump has been the opposite of a global leader. He's turned his back on the global community and made this a, a national issue. He's called this the Chinese virus. He's heightened tensions with China. He's tried to get uh, technologies from Europe and heightened tensions with Europe. So this is the exact opposite. But in a sense, what we're seeing reflects what's been going on for 
the last few years. And it's the reason why the international system is so unfit for purpose is because countries have refused to cooperate and that we really haven't learned the lessons, not only of the 2008 crisis, but even the Second World War and the First World War, where it became absolutely clear that cooperation is necessary. You're listening to Don't Shoot the Messenger. We'll be right back. This podcast and much of Daily Maverick's work is made possible by Daily Maverick Insiders, our community of readers who provide us with hugely appreciated monthly support. You can find details on the Insider program and the benefits available through it on the Daily Mavericks website. Ian spends a lot of time thinking about the future. And that's a topic which has never seemed more pressing than right now, when so many people are looking fearfully to the days ahead, the days beyond this pandemic, and trying to predict how it will reshape our societies. For Ian, some of the most immediate and obvious consequences are going to be economic. Many, many other countries, well over 50 other countries, including, for example, Italy, are going to have to get support externally for their finances. It's absolutely essential that this doesn't come with the conditions of the structural adjustment programs, that this is a recognition that countries have been behaving very well, that they're able to manage their own macroeconomic situation, but that this crisis has come totally exogenously, is no fault of their and is not because of failures domestically. It's the underbelly of globalization, the butterfly defect. The likely prospect that South Africa will come out of this further in debt to global lenders is unlikely to be domestically popular. After Finance Minister Tito Mboweni hinted that South Africa was considering approaching the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank for financial support, we already saw an outraged response from the South African Communist Party, Kasatu, and the faction of the ANC represented by Ace Magashule. It's easy to understand, actually, how this might not play well with wider portions of the South African population as well. Because here you have a health crisis not of our own making, imported into South Africa initially by wealthy travelers, and the end result is that South Africa ends up further at the mercy of foreign powers. It's not hard to see how the new normal might involve South Africans and citizens of other countries turning their back on the world, doubling down on nationalist xenophobic politics. Well, firstly, the support, of course, shouldn't and, and won't only come from the West. China and many Asian economies should also step up to this, and I'm sure they will. The The blaming of, of threats or of, of crises on foreigners is, of course, a very, very old tradition. And it is the case that this has come from elsewhere, much as most of the other big threats do. Of course, what also is going to come from elsewhere is the vaccines and the means to deal with it. And of course, the finances, hopefully, as well, to be able to reconstruct the economy and grow again and create the jobs and everything else that is necessary. So both the problems and the solutions are going to have to be international. Ian says that this is absolutely not the moment to reject the ideals of globalization, as tempting as that might seem in the post-pandemic political landscape. My sense is that what we need to recognize is that globalization has brought many goods, many elements of progress. And, you know, South Africa in the sanctions era, in the apartheid era, was a demonstration of what a sealed off economy does and how it destroys not only the economic progress, but the minds of those that are sealed off from the rest of the world in terms of their opportunities in multiple dimensions. And globalization is on multiple planes, including, of course, ideas and sport. The one 
dimension of globalization, which is accelerating at the moment, is digital. We're doing this podcast interview because of globalized, you know, the acceleration of digital capacity to allow this to happen. And there's been a quadrupling of digital flows year on year in March this year. But it isn't just economic and political shifts that we can expect in the new normal. There are predictions of change in everything from labor practices to urban design. To give just one small example, this pandemic has helped those working in public health to realize that many of our current hospital designs are largely built on 19th century assumptions of how healthcare should work and are really not suitable for handling pandemics like this at all. So even physical infrastructure might have to look different after the coronavirus. The pandemic is going to change many, many dimensions of our lives. It's going to change the relationships of government to the private sector. It's going to change the relationship between the youth and the elderly. And it's going to change, of course, the way we think about foreign flows. And it's going to change the way we think about our urban landscape. In countries like South Africa, though, we probably shouldn't expect very rapid and dramatic changes. Ian points out that even 25 years after the transition to democracy, South African cities are still grappling with the legacy of apartheid spatial planning. It takes a very long time. I think we'll see some slowdown and reversion, but I think it'll take longer to change the physical geography than it will for us to change our mental geography, uh, our relationships, the politics, and our social relations. That thing Ian said earlier about how he expects the relationship between the youth and the elderly to change. That really intrigued me. So I asked him to expand a bit on that. What this pandemic is really, and the lockdown is really in many respects about, is protecting the elderly and vulnerable. When you look at the data on mortality rates from the pandemic, young people are far, far less vulnerable than old people to the effects of this. And what we see, not least in China, across Europe and the US, is that the youth are basically sacrificing many things, including their freedoms to get together and their jobs to be able to get to work, to protect their parents and grandparents, in many cases, from being killed by the pandemic. They're also going to be inheriting a massive debt for generations to come. What governments should expect, says Ian is that additional provision is going to have to be made for young people all over the world to compensate for the hit they are currently taking, which needs to be acknowledged. So this is, in my view, enormous social solidarity from the youth to the old, in the same way that the world wars were, where it was many young men that died. Of course, now it's, it's younger people of all genders. And, and in South Africa, it's slightly different because it's a much younger population as well to say Italy in this respect. The impact of this, in my view, is that we're going to have to show as governments, as societies, a greater ability to invest in the youth. We're going to have to give back in terms of ensuring that they aren't sacrificing their education prospects, their job prospects, their income prospects going forward because they've made such an enormous sacrifice to stabilize our societies at this desperate time. Another way in which people are predicting change in the post-pandemic era is through technology. We've seen how governments globally have been harnessing technology and data to track people's movements and monitor their health. And it's expected, with some uneasiness, that this level of increased surveillance may be with us indefinitely. My own sense is that we will be increasingly entering into a, a world in which we assume 
that basically privacy has largely disappeared when we when we're digital. I don't, you know, welcome that. I don't look forward to it, but I do see it as part of this. And then the question really becomes, do we trust the people that have the information or not? And that's why trust in institutions, trust in the checks and balances, and believing that you have legitimate governments becomes more and more important. So here's a question that's been bugging me a lot. We're hearing and reading so much at the moment about the ways in which life after coronavirus might be different. And some of this is definitely frightening, but other possibilities are quite exciting about new prospects for distance learning, a more flexible approach to how people work, better universal healthcare. But what if nothing really changes? After the 2008 financial crisis, many people said that it was impossible that business could continue as normal once the flaws in global capitalism had been so starkly exposed. But business did continue as normal. Bankers didn't even go to jail. So when it comes to what follows the current pandemic, is it possible that the new normal could be pretty much the same as the old normal? My sense is that this is so deep, so global, so cataclysmic for many people and for our economies that it is going to mean that business as usual is not an option, that we cannot be complacent. And the only silver lining that can come out of this tragic pandemic is that we have a better world in the long term. And by dealing not only with pandemics and stopping the next pandemic, we will have also learned to cooperate and deal with other grave global threats like climate change. And of course, uh, development and inequality, which is right at the center of this and what this is highlighted is that, that it's really exacerbating inequalities within countries and between countries. Ian once wrote that globalization is a test of human character. What does this pandemic suggest about whether we are passing or failing that test? My feeling is South Africa is passing the test. I've mentioned the extraordinary powerful leadership that the president has shown But this lockdown is a terrible thing for people to endure anywhere, but not least in South Africa, where communities are living in very, very small and cramped conditions on the breadline, risking starvation, risking a huge amount to protect others and to protect themselves. And I think what we've seen in South Africa, the solidarity, including from the business community, which has been quite remarkable, the level of gifts the commitment of business, trying to help. You know, that hasn't occurred in the US. That hasn't occurred in Europe. And and to the best of my knowledge, it hasn't occurred elsewhere either. So South Africa, in many respects, has demonstrated, and I think this is, you know, come of the Ubuntu spirit and the coming together after apartheid, to defeat apartheid and to create a new society. I do get a sense that that positive spirit is overwhelming the dark forces of the pandemic in South Africa, but it isn't doing so everywhere. We wanted to leave you with a special gift. One of the world's greatest living writers, Arundhati Roy, recently wrote a piece for the Financial Times called The Pandemic is a Portal. Her piece is an utterly haunting distillation of this moment in human history, with all its anxieties and the possibilities that lie before us. So our producer, Haji, got in touch with Arundhati, and asked her if she'd be willing to read an extract of her piece for us. She was kind enough to oblige. What is this thing that has happened to us? It's a virus, yes. In and of itself, it holds no moral brief. But it's definitely more than a virus. Some believe it's God's way of bringing us to our senses. Others, 
that it's a Chinese conspiracy to take over the world. Whatever it is, coronavirus has made the mighty kneel and brought the world to a halt like nothing else could. Our minds are still racing back and forth, longing for a return to normality, trying to stitch our future to our past and refusing to acknowledge the rupture. But the rupture exists. And in the midst of this terrible despair, it offers us a chance to rethink the doomsday machine we have built for ourselves. Nothing could be worse than a return to normality. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It's a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohammed Dauji with sound engineering, editing and support by Bernard Kotzer, Tevya Turok-Shapiro and Catherine Kotzer. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on The Daily Maverick's website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to The Daily Maverick's newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Our podcast is only as good as you make it, so please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review.